If you have your Bible, open up to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. While you're doing that, I'm going to tell you about an interesting phase we're in in my home. Um, we, I have three kids, uh, ages nine, six, and three years old, and the three-year-old is the issue. Um, and her current thing she's into is she wants to cook with mom and dad when they're cooking uh, anything in the meal. So she'll come to the kitchen and say, mom, I want to cook with you. And, and in these moments, we as parents have a choice to make. We have to choose between the lesser of two evils. We have to choose which we want for the kitchen to be an absolute disaster because she helped cook, right? And poured everything all over the counter. Or we have to choose between a total three-year-old temper tantrum meltdown. And these are terrible choices that we shouldn't have to make, right? It's just like, Lord, yeah, life, a bunch of bad choices. You just choose the least bad one possible. We always choose let her cook because she's the cutest thing on earth. And, you know, what are you going to do? It's just a funny deal because we all know as adults that she's not helping anything. She's making it worse. Uh, She's making it harder. She's making it more difficult. But she wants to be a part of what mom and dad are doing. She wants to have a role. She wants to have a purpose. You know, our our older kids, they set the table and they can kind of open the drawers, get the stuff out. Mom and dad do the cooking and that kind of stuff. When I say mom and dad do the cooking, I mean mom does the cooking. And and then, so she wants to play a role in it, which is good. That's a a good thing. And so she's decided that cooking is going to be her thing. And um, the reason she pitches a fit when she doesn't get to cook, or we say no, or we say, listen, we're just throwing a pizza in the oven tonight, sweetheart. Like, the reason she pitches a fit is, um, one, because she's a three-year-old, and that's what they do, and then two, because she just wants to feel useful. She wants to feel a part of our family, a part of the mission of getting dinner on the table, if you will, and when she doesn't get to be a part of it, she's out of sorts. This morning, we're going to talk about Um, the mission of God and God's mission. And I have a theory that one of the reasons we as Christians get out of sorts in our spiritual life or go stagnant in our spiritual life is because we don't play a part in God's mission. And it leaves us frustrated or depressed or feeling useless or whatever. And that causes us to kind of check out on our faith. And I think the solution is not learning more Bible, although I'm always going to think learning the Bible is good. The solution is not praying harder. I think prayer is good. I think for many of us, our spiritual malaise, if you will, the solution is getting busy and getting into action for the mission that God has called us to. So we're going to look at that mission in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Read with me in verses 16 through 21. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful and trustworthy, that you do not let us down, and that is especially true when it comes to our salvation. It is secure in you because of who you are, because you are God. It is secure in you because of who accomplished it, you did. It's not done by our own works or effort. And Lord, you've given us a guarantee of our salvation by placing your Holy Spirit inside of us as a guarantee or deposit, your word says, that you're going to make good on your promises to us. Lord, as we look at what you've called us to do as your followers this morning, would you encourage us with it first? Or would this not be a time where we're discouraged or see our shortcomings or failures or anything like that primarily, but God, will we first see what you've done for us on the cross? And would that blow our minds and open our hearts? And then, Lord, would you help us to act in response to what you've done for us? And so would you speak to us through your word, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. This text, it's, it's a, man, it's just been eating me up all week, been eager to get to Sunday to share it with you guys, because this text is so vital for understanding who we are as Christians. He says in this text, the Bible tells us who we are. It says, we are ambassadors for Christ, the apostle Paul says. He's talking about himself, and by extension, all disciples of Jesus are ambassadors for Christ, he says. That's the identity, that's the role, that's the title that we have as Christians. And this morning, I want to focus in on what it means to be an ambassador for Jesus. This is why we still exist on the earth. This is why when you put your faith in Jesus and got saved, God didn't just zap you up to heaven immediately, right? Why? He has a mission for you and for me here on this earth, and that mission is to be his ambassadors. And so we're going to talk about three things, three characteristics of ambassadors. And the first one is this is ambassadors are sent. Ambassadors are sent. An ambassador, it represents a higher power, right? Just think politics and think kingdoms and governments and those types of things. An ambassador represents a higher power. A president or a king or a government sends someone on their behalf to another country or nation to speak for them. In this country, the highest-ranking diplomats, let's see if I can pronounce this, they're called ambassadors extraordinary and plenipotentiary. Yeah, I know, right? That's a heck of a title. It's, it's a big deal when you're to be sent out as an ambassador. And there's a, there's a swearing-in ceremony in our country that happens at the White House when you're named an ambassador. You and your family come into the White House, and you swear an oath uh, to, to uh, uphold and defend the Constitution. And, and you, you swear that you're taking this responsibility on willingly and that you're going to do the best you can to represent the interests of our country abroad. And then what do they do? They put you on an airplane, and they send you somewhere else. They send you to another country. If you're uh, a big donor, uh, you get sent to a really nice uh, country. If you're not so cool, you get to sent to a much less cool country, right? If you're actually skilled in diplomacy, you get sent to a strategic country so that you can uh, work on behalf of our 
government. And you reside there. Many of the countries that we have uh, diplomats in have homes or, or residences um, the, where, where the diplomat lives, the ambassador lives while they are abroad. And they live in this other country, surrounded by this other nation, this other culture, these other people. But do they ever stop being citizens of this country while they're over there? No, of course not. They're sent by this country, by this government, to another place. I'm a bit of a history nerd. It annoys my wife, but it's fun for me. Um, And so I've been reading way too much about ambassadors in the history of diplomacy in the United States this week as I've thought about this text. And I was surprised to discover that Benjamin Franklin was our first ambassador. Did you know that? His ambassador to France, the Continental Congress, needed desperately for France to get behind the American Revolution and on our breaking away from uh, England. And so they sent Ben Franklin uh, to France to be the ambassador of France. He was the first ever recognized diplomat from our country. And this imagery of an ambassador sent to a foreign land it fits with what we're talking about here in 2 Corinthians 5. It fits the imagery of what we're called to do as Christians. We represent, as believers, the ultimate authority in the universe, and God sends us to speak on his behalf. We're ambassadors not for a government or for a nation or for a king of this world, but for a heavenly king. And we represent him to a lost and dying world. In fact, you could stretch this analogy a little bit and say we as Christians have access to the throne room of the king, right? We can walk right into the king's presence in his heavenly throne room, speak with him, interact with him, hear from him, commune with him. And then he, what does he do? He sends us out with a message, with a people to reach and to speak to on his behalf. There's a ceremony, just like there's a swearing-in ceremony uh, for a government ambassador. There's a ceremony for you and I as Christians where we're commissioned as ambassadors. Do you remember your commissioning ceremony? It was your baptism. That is our commissioning ceremony where God says, now you are part of my family. You are now my ambassador. I've placed your Holy Spirit inside of me. You've put faith in me. And this ceremony symbolizes all of that. You're now made alive in Christ. Now go and speak for me. We're citizens of heaven, but we're sent to a foreign people. This world, church, is not our home. And understanding our role as sent ones is vital to being the kind of Christians that God calls us to be, to living the life that God has asked us to live, to being a part of God's mission that he has for us. Imagine if an ambassador forgot what their job was, right? They do the swearing-in ceremony, right? They get on the airplane, they get to their new digs in their new country, and they go, all right, time for some sightseeing, you know? Or they go on a food tour around the nation eating the best food that this country has to offer. Maybe they got lucky and they got sent to a nation with a beach and so they grab their, their, their trunks and a towel and go hang out on the coast. And they skip all the meetings with the dignitaries, all the meetings with uh, the, the other heads of state and they just hang out and get all that they can out of their country that they're visiting. And instead of communicating with Washington about strategic priorities, they spend their day on sightseeing tours around the countryside. What would happen to that ambassador? They'd get recalled pretty quickly, right? And I got to tell you, church, my concern, my fear for my own life and my fear for you and for our church and for the Christians globally is that we are living 
as tourists in a foreign country and not as ambassadors in a foreign country. We have not been left here in this world to get all that we can out of the world that we live in before Jesus takes us home. We have been put in this world to take all that we can with us when Jesus takes us home. Our mission as Christians is to reach the lost with the gospel. It is not to have a good time until Jesus takes us home. Does God want to bless us? Does God want us to enjoy life? Absolutely. Is that God's highest goal for our life? No way. God wants us to be disciple-making Christians. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The problem with the world, the reason more people aren't coming to faith, the reason Christianity is in decline in this country at a dramatic rate is not because of a lack of lost people. It's because of a lack of laborers. And church, the duty is ours to reach the world around us for Jesus. In this community alone, in just like a five-mile radius around this church, there are tens of thousands of people who do not know Jesus. And here our church sits with the truth. That should grieve us first, but then that should excite us, Lord. We've got an opportunity to make an eternal impact on our community. We have the good news of the gospel. We have the life-changing truth of the gospel. And God has sent us here to spread it. Where do we need laborers? We need laborers wherever lost people are found. I want you to consider with me for a minute your spheres of influence. Where has God placed you? Where do you work? Do you go to work every day? Do you log on to work every day? Where is work for you? Who do you have a relationship with at work? Where do you live? Someone live nearby? I don't know many of you that live on giant 100-acre farms that don't have neighbors, right? We all have neighbors. God has placed you somewhere. And if you do, please invite me over to ride four-wheelers. <laughs> Does your, do your kids go to school somewhere? Are you friends with their teachers or the other parents in the class? Maybe you go to school somewhere. You have classmates that you know. Do you go to a gym? Do you play pickleball? Do you play basketball? Do you play golf? Where do you go shopping? What's your favorite restaurant? Where has God placed you in this community? Let me tell you, wherever he has placed you, he has done it for a purpose. He has done it so that you might be a light in a dark place. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We are the torchbearers, if you will, the good news of Jesus, and he has placed you there on purpose. This is your mission field. If we really believe that God is in control of the universe and he orders our steps, then God has sent you where you are for a reason. So I would encourage you, take a moment, even right now as I'm talking, to think about who has God placed close to you that needs to hear the good news of Jesus. Who is it? What's their name? Think of them in your heart now. 
We are ambassadors. We are sent. Which brings us to the next question. What do ambassadors do? What do we do when we show up? Well, ambassadors have a message. Ambassadors have a message. The king doesn't just send out ambassadors to exist in a foreign country, does he? No, he, he sends them out with a message to proclaim, with, with communication to deliver. Verse 20 of our text says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. And here's what we do. God making his appeal through us. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Have you ever thought about that? That's an incredible statement. The God of the universe, the creator of the world who formed everything with his words, who holds everything together with his words, who has existed into eternity past and will exist into eternity future, who can do anything at any time, has said, I want to use you. What a privilege. What a privilege. You think my daughter feels special when we let her stir the macaroni and cheese in the pot. Wow, how special ought we to feel? that God wants to use us to accomplish his mission in the world. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need to. In fact, much like my daughter and dinner, we screw it up a lot of times. But because he loves us and he wants to invite us into what he's doing, he says, no, I want to use you. What does he want, us to, use us? What does he want to use us to do? He wants to use us to speak the message of the gospel. And this is very important. He wants us to speak the message of the gospel. The gospel, what are we talking about when we say gospel? Gospel is a church word. It's a Bible word that just means good news. And the gospel is God's solution for sin. You see, sin is another Bible word that just means missing the mark, or it means uh, violating God's law or stepping outside of God's plan. God has given us a blueprint for how to live. He's told us what is right and what's wrong. And even if we haven't read it in his word, we know it in our hearts. He's given us a guide for how we're to live our lives. And because of our brokenness, we do the opposite a lot, don't we? Can I get an amen? Any sinners in the room? Just three of you? Okay, great. I'm talking to you then. We violate God's law, and this creates a problem for us. It's a major problem. Because God is holy and perfect and pure and righteous. When we sin, we are imperfect and unholy and unrighteous. And God can't have fellowship with unrighteousness or with sin. Further, because God is just and righteous, he can't let sin or wrongdoing go unpunished. It must be dealt with. Justice must be served. And still worse, because our sins are committed against an eternal God, the punishment must be eternal in nature in order for justice to actually be served. And so this is very bad news. It's bad news for every person that's been born that because of our sin, we are separated from God and then do eternal punishment for our shortcomings. That's the bad news, but it's only half the story. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. See, God, he didn't just leave us with this problem, but he instead sent Jesus, the only person, the only human being on earth to never no sin, to never commit sin, to never step outside of God's law or God's plans. He sends Jesus, God and man, fully both to walk on this earth. And then he's treated like a sinner. The Bible says our sin was placed 
on him. And he takes our sin upon himself and he goes to a cross. And because Jesus is perfect, his death on the cross pays perfectly for all sins. And because Jesus is eternal, it pays the price for all time for all sins. And so God takes away our guilt, our due punishment, and he places it on Jesus. And Jesus does it, takes the penalty for his sins, for our sins in our place. But it gets better. Not only are our sins forgiven, not only do we transfer our sins to Jesus, but Jesus makes a transfer in return. He transfers his righteousness to us. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we are made righteous. So when God looks at us, when he looks at you, when he looks at me, he doesn't see our failures. He doesn't see our shortcomings. He doesn't see our wickedness or our sin or our failures. He sees perfection because of his son, Jesus. Church, is that good news or what? So you may ask, what do I have to do to get this? This sounds awesome. It is awesome. What do I have to do? Do I have to give money? Do I have to do good deeds? No. A guy asked Jesus what time, what must I do to do the works of God? You know what Jesus' reply was? He says, believe on the one whom he sent. This is a free gift. Our salvation is a free gift from God. And all that's required of us is that we believe, that we turn away from our old way of living and instead follow him because of what he's done for us on the cross. When I say ambassadors have a message, that is the message that he made him who knew no sin become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the message that the church has proclaimed for 2,000 years and will proclaim until Jesus returns. And this is the message that God sends you and I out in the world to implore with him, be reconciled to God. But we've got to speak the message You can't accept the gospel by osmosis, by just being near someone who knows it. We can't do so many good works that people just magically start believing the truths of the gospel. The word gospel, I've said earlier, is a message. It's good news. News has to be spoken or read. There's no other way to deliver news than that. Romans chapter 10, speaking to this very point, the apostle Paul writes, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful the feet are those who preach the good news. So church, we are ambassadors. We are sent to a people and we are sent to those people with a message. So my question, and this is all, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I haven't said anything revolutionary today. I've said stuff that everyone knows, if you're a believer. Why do we have so much trouble doing it then? Right? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do we have so much trouble sharing our faith? And I think there are several reasons, but one of them for sure is that we don't think we're skilled enough, right? Can I get an amen for that? Anybody feel ill-equipped to share the gospel? It's okay to admit it. I feel ill-equipped. We don't feel like we have enough. We don't feel like we have enough oratory skill. We don't feel like we have enough Bible knowledge. We don't feel like we're good enough people to be able to share the gospel. And so that creates a hesitation in us that makes us go, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not right now. 
But I want to encourage you that we are not called to give stirring speeches that win awards. We're not called to know everything the Bible has to say about everything. In fact, the, the, the veracity of our message, the truthfulness of our message is not even based on our own personal holiness. All our job is, is to speak and to open our mouths and just share the basic facts of the gospel. They're not complicated. We're all sinners. That sin separates us from God. Jesus paid the price for that sin on the cross. He rose three days later. Would you like to believe? Like that's, I mean, you could do that. Anybody can do that. There are all sorts of formats for presenting the gospel, right? If you've been around church, again, you might remember evangelism explosion. This is old school here, right? We've done that. Maybe you learned Romans Road as a kid. You may learn that. It's good. The Four Spiritual Laws is very popular. Uh, three Circles is the new one right now uh, that's, that's going around. That's, it's very good. People like to argue about which one's better and it's most effective. D.L. Moody, he was an evangelist. Uh, and he's uh, famous for having this interaction with a lady who was criticizing his format, his evangelism format. She said, she said Dr. Moody, I don't like your evangelism strategy. I don't, I don't like your evangelism method. And Moody replied, I don't like it either. Tell me about yours. She goes, well, I don't, I don't do it. And he goes, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. And I think he speaks to something there that the strategy is not at issue here. It's the proclamation. Just do it. It doesn't matter how. Do I think a lack of equipping is a reason we don't share our faith? Absolutely. And there are tools for that. And I'm happy to work with anyone who wants practice in that. I think the most effective evangelism tool that any of us have is our own story of how Jesus saved us. Nobody can argue with your story. Nobody knows your story better than you. You can just tell people what Jesus did for you and see if they want to receive that same gift. So yes, lack of equipping may be an issue, but I wonder if a bigger reason might be that we've forgotten just how good the news of the gospel is. I think sometimes we fail to share the good news of the gospel because we don't think of it as good news anymore. <clears throat> My wife Taylor and I have been married for 13 years. We got engaged 14 years ago, approximately. We got engaged in Washington, D.C., which was where she was living at the time. She was working for a senator. I was working in youth ministry back then, um, so she, her working for the government, me working in, in ministry, my first ever ministry job, so we were poor. Um, we would travel back and forth every six weeks or so and see one another. I was living in Tallahassee at the time. And so uh, when it was time to propose, I, I hatched this big grand plan, and I don't have time to tell you the whole story this morning, but it's a good one. Uh, <laughs> but I can't tell you that after she said yes, was there some debate whether she actually said yes or not? But anyways, after she said yes, we went to our favorite restaurant in Washington, D.C. It's called Me and You uh, to have dinner. It's closed down now, sadly. But we went to our favorite restaurant, and I cannot tell you anything about our dinner that night. I just remember we went there. I don't remember what we ate. I don't remember if it was good, if it was bad, if the service was good or not, if it was enjoyable. I don't remember any of it. And do you know why? Because we spent the whole dinner on our phones telling everybody we could the good news. I mean, we just sat across from one another on the phone. Her on the phone with her parents, me on the phone with mine. Then we were calling friends, and we were calling aunts and uncles and grandmas. I mean, we were just telling anybody and everybody we could. I had invited all of our friends to Washington, D.C. for that weekend to have an engagement party. I mean, we spent the whole weekend celebrating good news. Why? Because I was certain that this was good news. I couldn't believe she said yes. And I was determined to share this good news with other people. 
And I think one thing that can happen to Christians over time is we can forget how good the news of the gospel is. Our hearts can grow cold as we get some distance from our salvation. We begin to take it for granted. It loses its impact on us. The joy that it once stirred up kind of wanes and dwindles. And when it doesn't feel like great news, the urgency to share it can fade away. And what we need is a reminder of who we were before Jesus and all that Jesus has done for us and all that Jesus has secured for us and the hope that we now have that we did not have. That reminder warms us again and reminds us how good the news is. Taylor and the kids have been out of town the last day and a half or so visiting grandparents and I am reminded of why I got married in the first place. It's no fun being alone. I'm not good at it. And so I'm acutely aware this weekend particularly of how good a news it is that 14 years ago she said yes. And I think in our spiritual lives as well, the solution for getting on board with God's mission, it may be more training, and we'll do some of that. But I think the first step is more love. More love for Jesus and what he's done for us. More appreciation for our salvation. More thanksgiving for what God has done for us. A more sober look at who we would be without Jesus and where we would be headed without him so that we're reminded of how incredible of a gift the cross is to us. And so church, we are ambassadors. And so as ambassadors, we are sent but we're not just sent to exist somewhere else. We're sent with a message. And that message is the truth of the gospel. And we deliver that message with borrowed authority. Ambassadors are sent with borrowed authority. When our government sends an ambassador to another country, that individual doesn't have the authority. That individual doesn't have any real power. That individual is vested instead with power and authority from our government, and they are just an intermediary. But the real bread and butter, the real stuff, comes from the one who sent them. Our authority as Christians, likewise, is borrowed. We speak for the king, but the king is the one with the power. We speak for the king. We're just the messengers. We're responsible for proclamation, but he's responsible for salvation, right? It is not our job to save people, church. And I think one of the reasons perhaps we hesitate with sharing Christ is we wonder, well, what if they don't believe? What if they don't accept it, right? We might feel like a failure, like we're not good enough. And when we do that, we're worrying about things that are not our job to worry about. Look at verse 18. Paul's talking about life change that happens. What does he say about it? He says, all this is from God. God is the one who changes hearts, church. God is the one who makes people new. God is the one who raises people from the dead. God is the one who breathes life into us, as we talked about in Ezekiel 37 earlier. God does all of this. We don't do anything. Just as much as we don't do anything in our own salvation, Jesus saves us. It's not by works, but it's by his grace. In the same way, other people's salvation is not dependent on us either. You and I are not responsible for the salvation of the people around us, but we are responsible for the proclamation that that salvation is available. And so in one sense, the pressure is off. It is not up to you to save anybody. It's not up to you to change hearts. In another, another sense, the urgency is high, right? 
We don't know what tomorrow holds. And if the good news of the gospel gets to a person after they breathe their last breath, it gets there too late. And so we have an urgency, church, to share with those that God has placed in our lives the good news of the gospel. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And so we must be diligent and faithful to share. We are God's plan A for reaching the world for Jesus. You and I, this church right here is God's plan A for reaching this community for Christ. He does not have a plan B. He's going to use us to do it. It's up to us to be faithful, to trust him enough to deliver on his promises, to trust him enough that he's powerful to work, work through us, to trust him enough that when he says he will give us the words to say that he will actually come through. We've got to trust him enough to do it. And we've got to love him enough and be satisfied enough in him and have enough joy in him that we can't help but overflow into our community and those that we love the truth of the gospel. And so what do we do with all of this as we close? If you're a Christian, I want to encourage you that your first step, my first step, is to warm our heart again by the heat of the gospel. If your heart has grown cold this morning, if you are indifferent to those who are lost around you, if you are indifferent to your friends and neighbors and family who don't know Jesus, your first step is not to go necessarily share the gospel, although that's fine. I think your first step is to probably return to the first things. Return to who Jesus is and what he's done for you. David, when King David, when he's caught in his sin, his heart had grown cold and and the Lord convicted him of his sin and draw, drew him back to him. In Psalm 51, he prays to the Lord. He says, return to me the joy of my salvation. He recognized the joy of his salvation had disappeared and he needed it back. That may be our task too. To be excited again by what Jesus has done for us. To be thrilled by the news that God saves sinners. To be thrilled by the news that it's by grace and through faith and not by works lest anyone should boast. To be thrilled by that. Is your heart stirred by that at all? And if not, there's some work to do in that place. And then I think our next step is to consider who God is sending you to. Who is it? I would encourage you. Think of their name. See their face in your mind's eye. Is it your neighbor, a family member, a friend, a co-worker? Who is it that God has sent you to? Then after that, I want to encourage you to consider what you'll say. Not a script, not a formula, but just remember the truths of the gospel and consider how you might say it. Consider your own story. Remember again how God saved you. Perhaps you might practice it on your way home. Just tell whoever you rode to church with your story of how you came to Christ. Just practice getting the words out, but be prepared for what you might say. And then finally, I think our task is to ask God, to beg God for courage and opportunity for opportunity to speak and the courage to step into it when the opportunity presents itself. I have found that those who are looking for opportunities to share the gospel always find them. And I've also found that those who are not looking for opportunities to share the gospel almost never find them. I've heard people say, I just don't have anybody I to share with. I don't think you're looking. We live in a world that is so lost it's not even funny. There are people all around us who need the good news of the gospel. Let's pray that God would show them to us, that he would give us an opportunity to speak, and that we would have the courage to speak when it comes time. We're going to spend some time responding this morning in song. And if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to pray 
during that time for someone who needs the gospel. I'll be down front right here. I'd love to pray with you for someone in your life who needs Jesus. I want you to pray that God would warm your heart again with the good news of the gospel. I want you to pray for opportunities and for courage. But also, if you're not a Christian, I'm not under the illusion that everyone in the room this morning and everyone watching online now is a believer in Christ who's actually put their faith in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, let me beg you, make today the day. I am imploring you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He doesn't require anything of you. He's not asking you to, to, to make some grandstand. He just asks for your heart. He just asks that you would believe. He asks that you would turn from your way of living and try his way instead. It can be as simple as a prayer. I would love to pray that prayer with you. I'll be right here. would love to pray for you for that, if that's what you want to pray with. But don't let another day go by. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised to make it out of this parking lot alive today. And so I want to beg you on behalf of Jesus to be reconciled to God. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing and we're going to pray. I'll be up here. would love to pray with you about any of those things. Someone who's lost in your life. I know that's weird. Maybe you're not used to coming forward in church and that's fine. But there's something about taking the step of obedience, take a few steps forward that can kind of teach us how to respond in faith and trust. And so if you'd like to do that, I'll be here. Let me pray for us and the band's going to come back and we're going to Respond to God's word and worship. Lord, we love you. And I thank you that someone shared the gospel with me. I thank you that they used words. They didn't just live a good life in front of me, but they proclaimed the truth of the gospel. And I thank you for quickening my heart so that I would respond to it. And Lord, we recognize that there are others in our lives, in our community, in our spheres of influence that need that same life-changing truth. And Lord, would you make us an evangelistic church? Would you make us a church whose heart breaks for the lost around us? Would you make us a church whose heart breaks for the pain that separation from you causes? And would you make us a, a church that just loves our neighbor so much so that we're willing to tell them the truth? And then, God, would you give us the courage to do it? And so, Lord, as we respond, would you help us to move? And would you send us out of this place eager to proclaim the good news to any and all who might hear it? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.